Hello and welcome to episode four of the Consultant Speak podcast. Today we will be speaking with Dr. Bjorn Hansen. My name is Peter Russell from Russell Partnership Technology and I will be hosting this episode. Many of you know of Bjorn as the retired Dean of the New York University Jonathan M. Tisch Center of Hospitality. While he was Dean, the graduate enrollment more than doubled and the undergraduate enrollment increased by 25%. Scholarship awards increased by 800% and the program had among the highest student satisfaction scores for undergraduate programs across the university. Others know Bjorn as the retired global industry partner for PwC's hospitality and leisure practice, where he led audit, tax and consulting services and served on the US firm's leadership committee and the Global Financial Advisory Services Management Committee. And others know Bjorn from his research and publications. He has been cited in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Forbes, Fortune, Business Week, Time, Newsweek, Barron's, and almost every business and hospitality magazine, in addition to over 100 television and radio broadcasts. Currently, Bjorn is on the board of Summit Hotel Properties, a New York stock exchange company that owns 70 hotels. He has served as Summit's lead director, chair of the audit committee and chair of governance. He is also executive vice president of the company that owns the Pierre Hotel in New York. He is an active consultant, including two current litigation matters for which he is serving as an expert witness. He is an adjunct professor at NYU, among many other activities. Bjorn has been recognized many times, and just a few of these include one of the 33 most influential people in the travel industry from Travel Weekly, one of the 25 most influential people in the meetings industry from Meetings News, one of the lodging industry's 75 leaders from AH and LA Lodging Profiles and Leadership, Cornell University Hotelier of the Year, the Lifetime Achievement Award from HSMAI, a life member of Cornell University Council, and a trustee for Cornell Hotel Society Foundation. I'm really looking forward to the time speaking with Bjorn today. Hello, Bjorn. How are you today? Great. Good, good day. Thank you. Good, good. Well, uh, I'm glad to have you here. And uh, thank you for being part of this podcast series. Uh, I'm going to jump right in with the first question, if I may. Uh, and ask you what your perspective is on how hospitality uh, and specifically lodging will recover from from all of the challenges that we've uh, experienced through 2020. Well, that's a great uh, first question. Um, I'll try to uh, avoid stating the obvious. Uh, uh, This has been a a situation for the industry unlike any time in uh, history. Um, And uh, my view is it will be a slow, uneven recovery. Uh, recent forecast updates, I think, may be too optimistic. Uh, U.S. hotels uh, returning to 2019 performance levels in 2023. A few have revised that to 2024. I think it's important to understand that 2019 was not a normal year. Uh, 2019 U.S. lodging occupancy was the highest occupancy within a few tenths of an occupancy point since 1981. So the highest occupancy in almost 40 years 66% according to uh, to STR. As I said, 2019 wasn't normal. It was really exceptional. And contributing to that were some things that are going to be different for a while. A record inbound international travel, a strong recovery from a few years earlier for group and convention business, 
very few reasons for individual travelers to be concerned about health and safety. And then initial exposure to uh, video conferencing and accepting really wasn't major. And now that's uh, become, uh, become a norm. Uh, however, I am extremely optimistic that we'll return to good occupancy performance, maybe just not the record performance over just the next uh, two to three years. That optimism is based on what's happened in the past. Um, you know, nothing's been like what we've experienced in the last uh, year. But we've had some really serious events in the history of the lodging industry, and I'd like to talk about them for just a, a moment. 1973-1974, oil embargo. The 1979 oil shortage. 1982, a severe recession. The 1980s, the introduction of video conferencing. 1986, another serious recession. 1990, the Persian Gulf War. In 2001-2002, the effects of 9-11. In 2008-2009, the Great Recession. Let me talk about just 1973, that oil embargo, because not everyone was around uh, for that. Uh, OPEC, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, proclaimed an embargo against the U.S. This lasted from October 1973 to March 1974, so six months. The entire country was affected, but the east and west coasts, the major cities, the most. And it was such that you got to buy gasoline based on your license plate. If you had an even or odd number license plate, you would get to buy gas on even an odd number calendar days. Um, and this was before cell phone and the internet. So the practice was to drive around on the right day to try to find an open gas station with gasoline, get online, wait one to two hours. And again, we couldn't be on our cell phones um, doing business and things. It was just sitting in the car. Travel all but stopped because... People didn't want to use their gasoline for things that weren't necessary, worried about fuel at destination. And there were headlines in the trade publications widely predicting that travel will just never be the same. People will never fear, feel the stability of gasoline and oil that will affect travel forever. Well, of course, that wasn't the case. Following 9-11, people were concerned that terrorism fears would cause people not to travel, but also the lingering effects of travel inconvenience, security lines, having to remove shoes and coats, removing computers and devices from luggage, limits on the size of toiletries. And people said travel will never be fun again. It will be so inconvenient, it will affect travel forever. And of course, 2019, a record year of occupancy performance. So with all of these, you really had to be there to understand the negative outlook but we've always recovered, and of course, we will recover this time. But as I said earlier, I think it's going to take more than the, the two to three years that some of the forecasts are predicting uh, now. As you say, it's, um, I think it's really important to look back at the, um, the comparables from the past. And yeah, thank you for that. That's um, yeah, it's insightful to sort of just consider it in, in that context. Um, and I certainly did hit you there with a big question to get things started. So uh, thanks for that. And, you know, in terms of those things you just mentioned, you know, looking back is always a, a good thing to do. And um, I'd like to ask, what are the, uh, what a few of the industry changes over the past 40 years that have impressed you the most? So there are many that are kind of top of mind. So I'll try not to mention, uh, again, the obvious ones, but um, a few things. I'd like to talk about supply segmentation. Uh, certainly, there have been many things that have affected travel, wealth, low cost of our travel, and, and uh, just the availability of information. But um, supply segmentation has driven demand as much as the most of, uh, of those. If we go back uh, you know, 40 or 50 years, 1960s, there were hotels and motels. 
And it wasn't really until the early 1970s that we saw what I'm calling supply segmentation. And I kind of laugh. I was reading a document a few days ago published in the 1970s by Laventhorn Horwath. The title was The Budget Hotel Who Stays There? Because inexpensive quality branded hotels were an innovation at the time. And if we look across the last 40 years of um, supply segmentation innovation, it's been limited service hotels, select service hotels, all suite hotels, extended stay hotels, conference centers, airport hotels, boutique hotels, lifestyle hotels, home sharing, residential formats. So, you know, these really were major innovations at the time. It's also interesting, most of these came from outside of the traditional lodging industry. These were disruptors and, um, and innovators. And these specialized lodging concepts met travel needs and uh, ideas for travel that caused there to be more travel. They allowed demand to grow uh, for almost everyone to have a lodging service or product that met uh, specialized travel purposes. So just more reasons to stay at hotels. So um, again, we think uh, I think that supply segmentation deserves more credit than it gets. Another is just the availability of, uh, of data for decision-making and for market efficiency. Kind of really started with STR in 1987, uh, Smith Travel Research uh, launching. Before that, there was Harris Care Foster and Laventhal, Krekstein, Horwath and Horwath, or Horwath and Horwath. But STR was a major move forward in the quality of uh, data, the availability of it. Then in uh, 1990, uh, Coopers and Librand, the first really quality econometric uh, forecast, which was not developed by hotel professionals, but by econometric modelers working with hotel uh, specials. But now we have STR, Calibri Labs, Lodging Econometrics, TravelClick, Hotstats, LW Hospitality Advisors, and dozens more with good quality, readily accessible data, again, for decision-making and market efficiency. Another that's kind of good and bad news, but I think on balance it's good, is the OTAs, online travel agencies, and user-generated content uh, sites. Um, an individual independent hotel now can have distribution, visibility, and achieve market share to compete with the best of the, of the brands. And uh, hotel performance now is based on merit more than ever before. And the OTAs are part of that. Sometimes OTAs are described almost as the enemy, but kind of important to remember, OTAs can only distribute room night inventory that's provided to them, right? They can't sneak in and steal inventory. It has to actually be allocated uh, to them. They exist because of uh, a market efficiency and their ability to widely distribute industry. And also a plus by OTAs is their advertising in several media, especially broadcast media, exceeds that of any hotel company's advertising budget. So it's constant promotion of travel and hotels. And although the message is often about price, you know, advertising is a way to shift the demand curve. So again, on balance, I think OTAs and the use of technology has been a great positive for the industry over the last uh, 40 years. Absolutely. And it was really interesting to hear what you were saying there about disruptors. And I think sometimes we can tend to think of these disruptors as being something that only impacts us now. But in actual fact, there have always been disruptors to the industry and they will continue to be. You mentioned there are lots of changes that have impressed you. I'd be interested to know, what are a few of the industry changes over the past 40 years that you might challenge or criticize? 
So uh, criticize or at least maybe ask a challenging uh, question. Uh, earlier, I mentioned that 2019 was the year of the highest occupancy within a few tenths of an occupancy point since 1981. And uh, But what about average daily rate in 2019? It seems obvious that uh, record occupancy should allow for some premium pricing that would be measured by average daily rate. Again, using STR data, in 2019, average daily rate increased by 1%, 1.0%. But inflation in 2019 increased by 1.5%. So with record occupancy, lodging industry couldn't even keep pace with inflation. And that's uh, more bad news than it might sound because certainly labor costs, insurance, property taxes increased at more than the rates uh, of, uh, of inflation. So over the past uh, 20 years, especially, the profession of revenue management has proliferated. Um, is the industry performing better, measured by ADR, with the addition of about 35,000 uh, revenue managers? Um, again, revenue management is where the price is set. So that's part of the picture of revenue performance. Now, revenue managers, you know, my experience are smart, analytical, motivated, equipped with good data, and they make good or even great property level decisions. But how can revenue management as a profession be reconciled with average daily rates increasing at less than the rate of inflation, you know, with the highest occupancy in almost uh, 40 years? A second question would be about brands. If we look at the history of lodging brands, they really had two attributes, uniformity and distribution. And uniformity was, you know, if you stayed at a hotel in Maine, Florida, or California, the room was identical or close to being identical. In fact, one brand in the 1980s, the advertising slogan was, no surprises. Well, now uniformity can be seen by some travelers as a negative those travelers, many are seeking genuine experiences, local sourcing, respecting and promoting local culture and values. So uh, that uniformity benefit that the brands bought may not be so positive. And then distribution, which is the reservation systems. Well, for a long time, brands own distribution of that inventory. But now with OTAs, even though Brand uh, websites and Hotel Direct still represents the majority of hotel reservations. Certainly, OTAs have been able to invade distribution and certainly affect pricing uh, within the, uh, the industry. So what do brands offer today if it's not uh, absolute control over uniformity and distribution? What becomes things like loyalty programs, uh, purchasing, the purchasing power of large organizations, and maybe a requirement there being uh, the credibility to obtain uh, financing. So it's really a different value proposition, but the share of revenues being earned by brands is the highest it's ever been. Working with a uh, colleague of mine who opened five hotels over the last few years, his average amount that he's paying to the brands, now some of it's not you know, reimbursement expenses, it's allocation, for example, for contribution to advertising, but his average across his portfolio was 19% of his revenue was being paid to the brands, either in fees or, or allocations. He's not getting 19% of revenue in a return on, on his investment. So, you know, I would say, you know, certainly the brands have changed in what they represent and the value. And I think when we go out 10 or 20 or 40 years from now, that brand value will have to be different to justify the revenue share that's being earned by the brands.
For sure. And it's uh, it was interesting to hear what you say there about the, the value proposition there in terms of how all that works and, and what we can learn by looking at the past is obviously always really important. So moving forward, I'd be interested to know what do you what do you expect to be some of the most important changes over the next 40 years where, where we're moving going forwards? So I'll answer your question a little bit in reverse, because there will be at least two things that I don't think will change, but how we apply them uh, will change. So what is a hotel unit? It's a bed, a bathroom, a place to hang clothes, uh, entertainment system with connectivity, climate controls, and a door with a locking mechanism. And all of the innovations in lodging still work around those core attributes of, of, uh, of a hotel room. Um, we've had about two major supply innovations per decade over the last uh, 40 years. It's been amazingly consistent in that number of two per decade. I don't know what they'll be because that's not what I do and what I know about, but I think there will be, again, going forward, maybe two major supply innovations uh, per decade, and they'll relate to service and price and location and market orientation and the economic model. But again, the core, what is a hotel unit? That's something that is unlikely to change. Another thing that won't change is really the service that hotels provide. And um, I say this to my students at NYU, hotels serve at some of the most important moments in people's lives. On a personal level, it's college visits, job interviews, training, weddings, honeymoons, anniversaries, bar and bas mitzvahs, family vacations, visiting friends, personal travel. Again, among the most important moments in people's lives and for business, um, it's recruiting and training and strategic planning meetings and product announcements, uh, conventions um, and, uh, and other kinds of business meetings, incentive travel, due diligence and litigation requiring hotel stays. So just the value that uh, hotels can offer, that's something that can't change and can actually be enhanced over time with some future innovations that can be offered and it's important to understand if there's a service failure, if a hotel fails to deliver for most of these, it really can't be made up. You know, if it's a honeymoon or an anniversary and the, the event goes bad because of the hotel, you know, a comp room doesn't really fix the uh, fix the problem. So these responsibilities for these incredibly important moments uh, are likely to be even more valued by guests the responsibility that is to be even more important to guests with the new focus on health and safety that we've had in the last decade and what's happening because of COVID. So it's not just a legal responsibility, but a moral responsibility and an expectation of guests that, that these service moments and purposes will be, uh, will be even greater. Um, another uh, change that's been in place for now 20 years, but is accelerating is kind of the definition of demand segmentation. I've talked about supply segmentation, but the old model was that demand segmentation was commercial, leisure, group, and Smurf. Um, it's emerging to now that you know every hotel stay and every guest is a unique demand segment. Uh, there's multi-purpose travel, even if it's just in the mind of the traveler. You know the different need for arrival and departure times because of travel and the purpose of travel the unique needs of uh, and desires of, of uh, every stay. And enabled by data, um, it really should be that hotels can uh, respond to the needs and preferences of travelers almost on a per stay basis rather than broad demand segmentation categories. So, you know, I think we'll see over the next several decades much more guest-centric view 
of how reservations are made, how inventory is allocated, um, and again, the supply segmentation and, uh, and pricing. I also think another thing that we'll see uh, over the next several years that everyone says is uh, changing role of the brands, um, but I'll define it in, in my way of looking at it, which is the hotel companies and brands will become bigger and stronger, but not so much as brands, but more as affiliations. And again, that's purchasing power and loyalty programs and the ability to accumulate and act on data and just the collective expertise that comes from experience and the sheer numbers the intellectual uh, capital that comes with a large number of owners and franchisors and advisors. So even more concentration of, uh, of brands. Um, but there will be successful launches of independent hotels and brands, again, because the Internet enables in a way ever before. But you know, brands will change in their role, but uh, concentration, I think, will be greater 40 years from now than, than it is even today. Yes, and as you say, I think there's obviously there's lots of evolutions that will happen. I think the point about personalization of guest stays is, is, is clearly a really interesting factor, along with all the other things you mentioned. It's, it's clear that that's only going to evolve more and more as, uh, as time moves forwards. Uh, moving on, I wanted to, um, so re- referencing actually the podcast that we did last week, or two weeks ago, with uh, Stelian Yakov from Therma Group, and that relates to our new joint venture. So Therma Group, like many businesses, is expanding and building for the future. I'd be interested to know what your view is on the global impact of the expansion of, of well-being resorts and, and the, the wider growth of hospitality with, with some of the Giga projects of things like the Red Sea projects and the Amala projects in South, Saudi Arabia. So I'd be interested to know what your view is on that sort of growth and expansion of hospitality and, and what it's going to grow to become. The best research being done on uh, market conditions, guest preferences these days is not all published. A lot of it is proprietary to the brands, and I'm you know, fortunate to work on some of that or have access to some of it. And there are a few themes that come out of that. One is the desire, desire for experiences. So it's to create a reason to travel and then find a hotel or a resort that can meet that, uh, that desire. And the second is people trying to find ways to deal with stress or the perceived level of stress today. And that means to not just get away and lounge around, but to have something to direct attention, create experience, the sense of value, you know, focus on other things and what are maybe the items uh, causing uh, stress. Uh, the other is health. And that was research before COVID about doing things that were active and healthy. Um, and then the last one is sustainability, environmental friendliness, um, and uh, kind of the recognition of what the environment and local cultures mean. So what you've described really responds to all of that core finding, uh, our package of finding from the, uh, from the research. So again, uh, to the extent that people have a reason to travel, they can have experience, they can de-stress, they can do it in a way where they're going to learn um, and, and be in a healthy, positive environment. Um, you know, that's uh, certainly a trend supported by the research. Fantastic. And, and yeah, as you say, I think that's um, that focus on health and well-being is um, is core to quite a few of those things I just mentioned in the question in terms of Therma Group and those other those other big projects. And, and clearly the the growth of people doing staycations where people will travel, but they maybe won't travel as far as they traveled before, will will continue to show the importance of environments like that. So um, couldn't could not agree more. Changing tack slightly, um, I want to move to the education sphere a little bit, which obviously I know uh, you're heavily involved with and have been for many years. So 
you've been a college uh, college dean or professor for the last 12 years. So I'd be interested to know what is the state of hospitality education and what do you believe are the most important things for hospitality students to learn? So um, I've been fortunate. I've been uh, teaching, starting as a guest lecturer uh, back since 1978. So I've uh, observed more than a few generations of hospitality uh, students. Uh, today, there are about 215 colleges and universities in the United States with bachelor of science programs where the major is hospitality. And if we add in um, colleges and universities with courses or with concentrations and community colleges, well over a thousand uh, institutions. And they seem to have kind of two different missions. And this is a little bit too much of a generalization, but some are preparing their graduates to launch their career, their first two to five years um, in the industry. And others are really preparing their graduates for management or leadership positions, really aiming for like the 10th year of, uh, of their careers. Now, both need to teach things like industry terminology, key performance indicators, you know, how do hotels generate their profits, the ownership management and, and brand and affiliation models and things. But the programs that are trying to prepare for positions in senior management further along in the career are evolving, but even more, I think, uh, would be better in a few areas. And one is statistics. And it's how to collect and analyze and interpret uh, data. There um, are so much data available now, uh, but knowing the reliability and validity testing and really how to work with it, um, it will only become uh, more of a challenge and a greater need. Now, many of my students over the decades have been intimidated by statistics courses, but I try to present it more as solving puzzles and looking at, uh, at it as almost uh, turning up the lights we can see more and better through statistics rather than it being like a math exercise. Uh, a second field of study is uh, finance. Hotels are highly specialized real estate. Um, they don't convert very well to anything else when they fail as a, as a real estate development. They don't make very good housing with their configuration. They're very expensive dormitories. So these are complex financings at the property level and with the involvement of the public markets, you know, that's relatively new in the last 20 years, um, and the curricula could do some more in many of the institutions to catch up so their graduates are, are prepared in that area. And then the third is strategy and decision making. Um, you know, the lodging industry is especially unique, you know, because our customers, our clients, they're not where we are to study. Obviously, they're coming from someplace else, and studying in big aggregate numbers has limitations for research. So strategy, decision-making, research, data collection, analysis. So, you know, I think what's evolving is more quantitative programs and being more like business programs, but not being business programs. They should be really hospitality-driven. Uh, now, this current generation, again, I feel so fortunate to be uh, in the classroom, and it's unfair to generalize about large numbers of of people or, or generations, but but I will uh, anyway, uh, but uh, recognizing that I'm doing that. These are really extraordinary um, members of a, of a generation. They have so much information that they're exposed to. That's good. But what they're exposed to is really of their choice. And it's probably not the information that Gen Xers and baby boomers would say is what they should be spending their time uh, being exposed to. But their access and just awareness is, is really extraordinary. Um, their focus and attention to social and environmental issues. Um, 
which is filtered through influencers in many cases, has created a almost like a feeling of responsibility and puts a level of stress on many in this uh, generation. But it adds a value component to their thinking and decision-making that's somewhat unique to this uh, generation. Um, again, their feeling of responsibility of what they as individuals need to do, but it's very much on their own terms. It's not the kind of general responsibility that maybe the baby boomers saw for advancing uh, society and the causes of health and, and such. Um, and this generation takes so much for granted. You know, women in the workplace across hospitality degree programs, there are more women than men in most of the programs. Uh, when I attended uh, Cornell back in the 1970s, there were nine women in my class of 170, and now it's more women than men in most uh, programs. So just so much taken for granted. Uh, it's not about having employment. It's about having a career or a great job. It's about access to great health care, entertainment, constant feedback, being connected to friends and family and uh, being accepted and welcome any place, uh, any time, you know, not kind of my income or my education doesn't qualify me. There's just this sense of, uh, of you know, having the right to have uh, access. Um, and that happiness is not a goal, but an expectation. So it's really a very complex and different generation as I look across the different generations I've had in the, uh, uh, in the classroom. And researching this generation is, is especially difficult. I won't mention the hotel company or brand, but a few years I was asked to read some research that was leading to the launch of a millennial-oriented lodging brand. And when I read it, it was great data collection. But the interpretation, forgive me for saying this, was just awful. And the simile I used to, to this company was, if you look out the window on a cold day and there's ice on the ground, if you didn't know better, you can conclude it's a cold day because there's ice on the ground. You can look at data and just misinterpret it. And just an example, at the New York University International Hospitality Investment Conference a few years ago, we had a panel of recent graduates, and we asked them what hotel brands they followed on social media. The two most cited brands were Four Seasons and Ritz-Carlton, not the millennial-oriented brands. So aspirational travel and other things. So again, researching and figuring out how to serve this generation is a great challenge. I'm lucky my courses last semester and this semester are the intro courses to the Jonathan M. Tisch Center for Hospitality uh, at NYU. So I'm teaching them their first course, or I'm the faculty for their first course. It's exciting to meet them. Uh, but I really have an appreciation for what an interesting and capable generation this will be. Many will be a challenge to supervise or manage under old management styles, but they can be the best generation of hoteliers and employees you know, I think the industry has uh, has ever enjoyed. And as you say, um, you know, there is so much to learn within a hospitality degree. And, you know, due to the nature of it being such a diverse industry and, you know, there's so many factors uh, to take in. So there's a, there's a lot to do there. And just one final question before we uh, we wrap things up, and this will just connect the dots in terms of uh, we just talked about education and obviously we started off talking about industry. H how do you feel the industry should view current graduates over the next couple of years? So the, the next couple of years will be a challenge on both sides of that transaction. There will be fewer uh, new job openings. Um, there's a workforce that's available, that's trained with great experience and to make decisions about hiring, uh, you know, students just graduating from college or experienced workers. So that's going to be a challenge. 
Um, we have to recognize that. But actually, the experience for the graduating class in January was better than expected. And the organizations recruiting on campus or on virtual ways of being on campus, uh, but they're they're uh, recruiting through the career counseling centers and things like that is more positive than expected. So, um, you know, challenge on both sides of the transaction, but, you know, the programs are the best they've ever been to introduce graduates into their positions in the industry. It's a motivated, exciting young generation. So, you know, I, I, I'm optimistic and you know, things will be so much better in another couple of years and the industry will be back into a situation in a few more years to what it was in 2019, where it was very difficult to recruit and find employees. Absolutely. And, you know, as you say, it's just great to know that we have these great graduates um, coming out of, of colleges and universities. And, you know, that links in with that the, the question we had earlier about, about those new big projects and the new developments. So with all these new things coming on stream, there's going to be a requirement for, for those uh, graduating students to go into roles in those businesses. So, um, so that's great. Well, um, I could um, I could t- talk all day about this. Uh, I'm going to uh, bring things to a close and say thank you very much for your time and your insights. Uh, we really appreciate it. So, um, so thank you very much, Bjorn, and goodbye. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with Bjorn today, where we spoke about both the history and the future of the lodging industry. He shared some fascinating insights from previous downturns and times when the industry has had to recover from external factors. Bjorn also spoke about market efficiencies, revenue performance, and the availability of data to drive strategy and forecasting. He also spoke about demand segmentation and the shift to a more personalized approach where hotels respond to the needs and preferences of travelers on a per state basis. His view is that the industry will move to a much more guest-centred view in terms of how reservations are made and how inventory is allocated. Finally, Bjorn spoke about how hospitality education should be driven by the fundamentals of the industry, with aspects of business and finance included, to deliver a holistic overview and prepare graduates fully for working in the industry. Thank you all for listening to episode four of Consultant Speak. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating as this really helps our podcast be found by others just like you. We hope you found this podcast informative, educational, and that it has made a positive impact to your day. Thank you and goodbye.